Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Good to be with you. Um, my name is Oliver, as Matt mentioned, and excited to continue our series. Uh, you will notice I got my sexy voice on. I am starting to lose my voice as the day progresses, and I think I lost about 50% in the first service. So I might just be like, I might just, you know, totally lose my voice by the end of this, and uh, we'll just call the band up and call it a day. But uh, tonight, those poor students get like the absolute worst of me. So. Uh, you can pray for them tonight. But no, it's good to be with you. We are um, continuing in our series, Shifting Momentum, How Small Steps Lead to a Transformed Soul. And um, I, I love this series, and I love this kind of idea that the small, everyday decisions um, have an impact over a lifetime, that often uh, it's those small steps that make an impact over the course of a year, 10 years, 20 years, a lifetime. And uh, this principle really is, is kind of at the root of our rhythm series as well, that the small habits and the, the, the daily routines and decisions we make kind of uh, lead us in a certain trajectory. They shape the person that we become for better or for worse. And that's kind of the catch with today's message is that this principle works both ways. It also works in reverse. While it's true that small steps towards God over the course of a year or a decade or a lifetime can lead to a transformed soul, it's also true that small steps away from God over the course of a year or a lifetime can lead to a kind of deformed soul where we we become something or someone that we don't actually want to be. It works both ways. And I think we see this played out most clearly in the life of David, uh, particularly in one story. Uh, It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, I I, I told my wife, you know, like some, there's some stories that are just classic in scripture. And uh, I told my wife this week, I was preaching on David and Bathsheba and her eyebrows just kind of went up like, ooh, okay. Uh, There's a certain kind of mystique around this story, right? It's kind of like, Forbidden. It's like, ooh, Bathsheba. It's not just Bathsheba, it's like Bathsheba. Ooh. It's got a certain kind of feel to it, this story. It's not David and Goliath, David and Saul. It's David and Bathsheba. But there's something really important in this story that reveals kind of the significance of small steps taken in the wrong direction. You know David. He was a man after God's own heart, declared that by God himself. He becomes king. He, he's ruling, he's had great victories. God makes this kind of special promise, this covenant with David. He, he's got God's presence upon him. It's like everything is going his way up until this point. Everything has kind of gone right for David to some, in many respects. Um, he's at the height of his popularity and success. But you know how the story goes. David is up on the rooftop one day when he notices a woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he likes what he sees. And so he inquires about who this woman is. And after inquiring, David decides, I need to have her. And so he takes her and he sleeps with her. And the story might have ended there. That might have been all we get, except for this one detail. Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David is stuck trying to cover up what he's done. And so he brings Bathsheba's husband back from war. His name's Uriah. 
and he tells him to go home and be with his wife. But Uriah is such a man of integrity, he won't do it. And so David is kind of stuck, and so he resorts to sending Uriah back out on the battlefield, the very front of the fighting, and everyone else withdraws so that Uriah gets killed. You got to admit, this has all the ingredients of a great Netflix special, doesn't it? It's like, it's got the hunky shepherd boy, the beautiful woman, forbidden love, adultery, murder. It's like, it's everything you want in a Netflix special. But beyond just kind of the shock factor of this story, you have to wonder, how does a man after God's own heart end up sexually exploiting another man's wife, devising a sinister plan to cover it up, resulting in the murder of an innocent man? Right? How do we go from King David, anointed to be king, called by God, to this scenario? I think the answer lies in the text, in a series of small steps taken in the wrong direction. Because if we dig into the text a little bit, there's a few key details that jump out. Uh, 2 Samuel 11, it actually begins this way, the very first verse. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Interesting detail, the plot thickens. See, it was customary for kings to go out to war, to, to fight the battle that they were fighting, not necessarily on the front lines, but to be with the army, to kind of uh, stand in solidarity with the other soldiers who were fighting for the king. That was the custom of the day. It was one of the king's primary duties. The text even says, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, okay, and the whole Israelite army but David remained in Jerusalem. So while David's army is out on the battlefield risking their lives, David is back at the palace killing time, enjoying the luxuries of palace life, of his kingly status. That's his first small step. The author of this uh, scripture wants us to see that something is amiss here right from the beginning. David is not where he should be. David should be out with his army on the battlefield. He's not where he should be. And we don't know why he made the decision. It doesn't tell us. Maybe he was, he was tired. He had fought a lot of battle, battles. He'd had some great victories. He earned a break, right? He was king after all. Or maybe he was just kind of starting to believe his own press a little bit. Anointed by God, you know, this commander of great armies, killed Goliath, kind of feeling a little bit prideful or arrogant that maybe, maybe God would just give us victory if I'm there or if I'm not there. And so he took this one off. We don't really know, but whatever the reasoning is, this is the first small step for David. David isn't where he's supposed to be. The text goes on. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. So he's just up there. He's living his best palace life. He's, he's waking up from a nap. His army's out fighting. He's having a me day, a self-care day, a spa day maybe. He wakes up, and he just notices a beautiful woman bathing. And you might read this text and go, okay, wrong place, wrong time, right? Like he just, it just so happened to be he's out on the rooftop, and he sees a woman bathing. Maybe, maybe. But let's be honest, it's possible to be both foolishly and deliberately in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? It's possible to kind of accidentally 
intentionally be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But even so, the story could have ended there. David could have, could have ended the, the whole situation right there. There's a great quote from Martin Luther that comes to mind. He says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. David allows his eyes to wander and then his mind to wander. He gets fixated on Bathsheba. And now he needs to know, who is this woman? And so he sends for someone to figure out who she is. This is the next small step. But the report comes back. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here again, David has a decision, right? He's, he's might have been ignorant before, but now he knows this is a married woman. And he could have ended the story right then and right there. Ironically, uh, the woman's husband, Uriah, is out on the battlefield where David is supposed to be, fighting David's battle for him while David is back on the rooftop taking a palace vacation. And so David wants what he can't have. And because of the power dynamics of being king, in that day, kings got what they wanted. Uh, there was very little accountability. There was very little structure to that. If they wanted something, they got it. And so David takes what he can't have and he sleeps with Bathsheba and she gets pregnant. And now David is stuck. So he can't just move on and sweep this whole situation under the rug. He has to deal with it in some regard. And he has a decision. And so instead of admitting his guilt, calling Uriah back, asking for forgiveness, making things right, David begins to scheme. He begins to kind of build this sinister plan to bring Uriah back to kind of cover up what he's done. So two separate times, David calls Uriah back from the battlefield to eat with him and dine with him. And then he tells him, go home and be with your wife. And the first night, Uriah doesn't. He sleeps right outside the palace door on a mat. And so David tries again the next night. He throws a huge feast. He gets him drunk. He's like, this will do it. We'll get the guy some alcohol. This will do it. He calls him in. He tells him, go home, be with your wife again. And here's what Uriah says to David. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Do you see the irony? Like David's plan is, is uh, blown up because of Uriah's integrity. His own convictions kind of thwart David's sinister scheme. And so David takes things into his own hands with his final step. He sends Uriah back out on the battlefield and commands the troops to withdraw so that Uriah would get killed. And the text is clear. There's no kind of misreading this. This is murder. He says, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So how does a man after God's own heart end up sexually exploiting another man's wife, devising a sinister plan to cover it up, and then murdering an innocent man in the process? A series of small steps taken in the wrong direction beginning with one little decision not to go to war. It starts there and it ends somewhere tragic. When I was in Bible college, um, I had many forgettable 
Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon classes <laughs> where you come out of a class and you wonder like, what did I just pay for? And what, what, what was I just listening? You know, it's just like words. Um, but I had one class in particular uh, that stands out in my mind that I will always remember. We were talking as a class about why there were so many scandals in the church. Why were there so many scandals? Pastors who had moral failings, who uh, had an affair or uh, abused their power or stole money from the church or, you know, the list goes on. You actually don't have to look far to find these stories. Why were there so many? And I used to think, my perspective was that uh, there was something kind of wrong with these pastors going into the situation when they, when they took the job, when they became a pastor. There was something kind of fundamentally, maybe they had an addiction, maybe there was something that was, they hadn't dealt with, something from the past that kind of resurfaced. But as we talked as a, as a class and as our teacher told us story after story of pastors or leaders, really good pastors or leaders, uh, the story was the same every time. They had one conversation one day when they were tired or overwhelmed, overworked, that led to kind of a crossing the line in some instance. And they got comfortable And then they started messaging privately, and then the conversation grew, and the emotions got involved. And before you know it, a year or two years or decades later, they're in the midst of an absolute scandal and their family and marriage is left behind in ruins. How could something like that ever happen? He was such a good guy. He was such a good leader. She was such a, a family woman, right? How could this happen to them? See, no one ever wakes up and decides in a moment to have an affair. No one ever wakes up in a moment and decides to pick up an addiction. Almost always, it's a series of small steps that lead you down the wrong path, away from God into something that leads you into destruction. The beauty of small steps taken towards God is that they're small. They're easy to take. But the danger of small steps taken away from God is that they're small. They're easy to take. Sometimes we don't even notice we're doing it. We're taking a step away from God. And I think our gut reaction, when we hear a story like David and Bathsheba, or maybe you read something in the news about a, a scandal, a pastor, a, a leader, um, because this happens both inside and outside the church, for sure. Uh, I think our gut reaction is to kind of compare ourselves. We sort of put ourselves in the story a little bit. We're like, I could never, I would never do that. We kind of take the moral high ground. Like, how could they? I would never do that. And that might be true for you. I hope it is. But that's not the point. The point is that each one of us is capable of taking a small step in the wrong direction. The point is that each one of us is capable of letting something into our life that leads us down a path that's not good for us. It might not be murder, but the reality is we all have our own small steps. And so what are the steps that we might take today? What are, what are the small steps we so easily take without sometimes even noticing we're taking them? Um, I think often about greed, in our society, in our culture. We live in a, a, a culture that kind of has this pull, this gravitational pull towards more, more everything, more money, more status, more stuff, more possessions, bigger house, more houses, more vacations. It's just like everything is about getting and acquiring 
more. And if we're not careful, it can become so easy to use other people to our own advantage. We kind of uh, use other people to prop up our own security, our own career, our own vocation. Uh, and, and this is not just accepted, it's kind of celebrated in our world today. If you don't, you're foolish. Like, why wouldn't you take every opportunity you can to put you first? Right? Why wouldn't you take every opportunity you can to get ahead in life, to get more money, to secure a better future? Might be small, but it's a small step in the wrong direction. Or maybe it's gossip. Uh, I, we love, in our culture, some hot gossip, don't we? Like the tabloids. There's a reason we love Harry and Meghan, the Netflix documentary, and I have seen all six episodes uh, there's a reason we love these stories that kind of captivate us because there's some juicy details in there, right? There's some spicy gossip that we love to kind of get into our brain and talk about. And it might be something that seems kind of, uh, you know, nonchalant in the moment. Talking about other people poorly is just so acceptable. It's just like talking. It's just what we do, right? And sometimes we just justify it. Like, I'm not gossiping. I'm just telling everyone all of her dirty laundry, you know, whenever I can to anyone who will listen. That's not gossip. Uh, I, I'm just sharing confidential information that's not mine to share. That's not gossip. Like, is it really that bad? We kind of overlook sometimes when we paint someone else in a negative light. Each time a small step. Maybe it's what we allow into our eyes and into our mind. Your search bar on social media, the things you find yourself browsing through late at night, it is so easy to find yourself somewhere you know you shouldn't be. And you even wonder, like, how did I get here? Before you know it, it's a small step in the wrong direction. Or maybe it's just apathy. Like, I should go to church and be part of community, but yeah, I'll check out the live stream maybe. Uh, I should go and do that thing. I should go and repent, or I should go and make amends with that person, but I won't. I should tell someone about my struggle, but I won't. A non-decision is also a decision, each time a small step in the wrong direction. And the problem with small steps is that they're easy. They're easy. Each time you take one, the next becomes a little bit easier to take. Each time you compromise, the next compromise becomes in reach. And that's the problem with sin in particular. And that's what we're talking about here is sin. Its appetite is never satisfied. The more you get, the more you want, right? It's like eating a bag of potato chips. There's a reason why Lay's potato chips slogan was bet you can't eat just one, right? Because you start with one and before you know it, the whole bag's gone in like five minutes, right? Uh, it's the same with our appetite for sin. You start with something small and it grows. Your appetite grows and you want a little more. And you fixate on it. And it gets into your heart and then into your behavior and then into your soul. So how do we avoid these small steps? How do we avoid these small steps? Because m my perspective is that the enemy wouldn't come at you and say like, you know what, I'm going to get her to make a life-altering decision today that will ruin her. Usually that's not the case. But I do think he comes and he says, here's a small step. And it doesn't feel like much. Maybe in the moment it feels like off limits. feels like you're crossing the line. But it's really not that big of a deal. And before you know it, we begin to compromise and compromise and justify and justify. So how do we avoid these small steps? Ironically, I think the answer is found in the life of David. 
uh, a man after God's own heart. See, when David is finally confronted by the prophet Nathan in the next chapter, Nathan details exactly what's happened. And he says, you are responsible. David's first words are this, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, we get a window into this response because, you know, there's many great Psalms throughout our Bible. Psalm 23, penned by David, the Lord is my shepherd. One that often gets overlooked is Psalm 51, also penned by David. And it's really his confession of his sin in this moment. It's written right after he's confronted and he's pouring his heart out to the Lord. And he begins this way. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, the first thing we have to do, the first small step we take in the right direction here is to be honest. The biblical word here is to confess. We, we confess, we bring what's in us into the light because sin so often grows in the dark. It multiplies in the dark, out of sight. So we bring what's in us into the light, which is not something we're really used to doing in our culture right? We live in a culture that has kind of a, a slowly like degrading moral standard uh, that, that lives by these mantras of you do you and live your best life and, you know, speak your truth, which are all kind of phrases that sort of help us sidestep the reality of our own brokenness. Like rather than facing our sin, we just kind of go, oh, I'm just living, I'm just trying my best, I'm living my best life. And so we ignore or dismiss the reality of our own brokenness, but it does not work in the long term because deep down we know it's not true, that there's something in us that needs to be healed. And healing doesn't come through repeating a mantra, a cultural cliche. Healing comes through the presence of God. And so David here confesses, he brings what's in him into the light before God saying, have mercy on me. We need a way of dealing with our sin, not just dismissing it. David says, have mercy on me, God. We need confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, the Bible is so clear on this. The path to healing always runs through confession. The path to healing always runs through confession, being honest. And it doesn't matter how big your sin is or how much guilt or shame you may or may not feel about it. If we're going to guard our hearts, as it says in Proverbs, if we're going to guard our hearts, we first have to take inventory of what's actually in our hearts. We have to be honest about what's in there. We are broken people in a broken world. To be human is to live with the reality of sin, to wrestle with the reality of sin and brokenness in our lives. So we confess, it's the first small step. But then secondly, we repent. If sin is taking a step away from God, repentance is really taking a step towards God. It's turning the other direction, away from our sin towards God. Here's what David says, create in me, God, a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Like renew my spirit, give me a, a conviction and a steadfast 
spirit. Sometimes we misunderstand repentance as just kind of feeling bad about our sin. Like to repent is to kind of feel all the emotion, the guilt. Uh, it's not that. Repentance is a conscious decision you make to turn away from your sin to God. It's something we do, we commit to, we make a decision to do. And the beautiful part about our God is that it's never too late to do that. It's never too late to turn to God. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, the burden you carry with you. You will never be out of God's reach. You will never hit the limits of God's mercy. You will never exhaust his grace for your life. Eugene Peterson once said, when we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. There is always another opportunity to turn to God or to return to God, to take a step in his direction. And lastly, as the band comes, the final step, we repeat. <laughs> we repeat the process. See, this is not three quick steps to kind of solve your marriage or solve your life. This is not three quick steps to live a transformed life. This is an ongoing process that we begin and engage in every day, every week, every month, every year. This is not a one-time act. We confess, we repent, and we do it all over again when we screw up the next time. We confess, we repent, and we throw ourselves into the mercy of God again. Transformation doesn't happen in an instant. It usually takes time. It takes process. It takes a lifetime. Back in the 1980s, People magazine published an index ranking people's sin. <laughs> They called it the Syndex, which is so clever, uh, based on a survey of their magazine's kind of readers. And so they ranked kind of in, in least offensive to most offensive the vices or the sins people committed, just kind of in general in our world. But then they asked the readers to share how often they thought they sinned. <laughs> and you can imagine People Magazine readers, very honest bunch. So they responded by saying, the average person commits about 4.64 sins a month. <laughs> I don't know how that hits you, but I'm just gonna go ahead and make my own confession. My syndex is higher than 4.6 a month. Uh, more than once a week, I, I promise you. See, the reality is it doesn't matter how strong our resolve is, how much we kind of work ourselves up emotionally to make a right decision to, to live in a convicted way. The reality is we lose our way. We go off track. We kind of find ourselves wandering again. And so we come back to God again and again. We get angry. We lash out. We judge. We lust. We fall into temptation. We sin but then we come back to God again. Each and every time, a new invitation to explore the riches of God's grace. And as we do, our soul slowly begins to be healed and transformed each and every day. A new opportunity to throw ourselves the mercy of God. And so as we close this morning, I thought it only made sense for us to do this together, to kind of throw ourselves at the, the, the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, to confess, to repent, and hopefully to do it again when we sin next. And so as we close, I thought we could just kind of take inventory of what's in our heart. If we're gonna be honest about what's in there, we have to first look in there. And so 
We're gonna pray in a second, and my goal here is not to make you feel a certain way, to kind of feel guilt or feel shame or kind of feel any particular emotion. Uh, actually, my goal here is for you to be healed. We are healed as we come to God and throw our sin at His feet, and He washes it away again. And so I don't know what it is for you. There's maybe something on your mind already. Timothy Keller once said that the sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one you're most defensive about, <laughs> which makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable if I'm totally honest. Uh, so I'm not gonna draw this out and try to make this some emotional moment, uh, but let's just bow our heads and we'll talk to God and, and, and take inventory of what's in our hearts together as we confess and repent this morning. And so God, in this moment, we thank you that your arms are open towards us. There's a new invitation to throw ourselves at your feet, that you embrace us as we are, not as we ought to be. And so this morning, God, we just take inventory. We look inward for a moment into our hearts, praying that you would just reveal, God, is there a, a, an area of our lives that we need to just confess and bring into the light? Is there a decision? Is there a behavior, a habit that we need to deal with? God, would you just kind of bring something to mind as we look inward? We ask that you help us bring that before you and lay it before you and leave it there. So we take a moment just to confess silently. Thank you, Jesus, that your mercy knows no bounds. We will never hit your limits. And so God, in this moment now, we repent. We turn the other way. Would you help us, like David, God, have a steadfast spirit, creating us, God, a new heart that would walk in alignment with your ways, creating us, God, a heart that would long for you, to obey you, to serve you, to know you. We turn the other direction, God. As we go from this place, we turn the other way. We leave whatever it is that came to mind, we leave it behind, that you would lead us into a new direction. There would be a small step in the right direction as we close our time. So we thank you, Jesus, for your work, your ongoing work, your healing work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we inevitably wander, whether it's today or this week or this month or this year, whatever it is, whenever it is, whatever it looks like, God, we pray you invite us back into your embrace. Invite us back into the riches of your grace. We thank you for who you are, that you love us, you care for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond as we close in a song that kind of leads us into a response.